Righteous, ratchet, real. Real, real. Righteous, ratchet, real. Righteous, ratchet, real. Righteous, ratchet, real. Real, real. Righteous, ratchet, and real. Real, real. Welcome to the Righteous, Ratchet, and Real podcast. This podcast is for people who love God, but sometimes side-eye the church. We're three friends balancing the secular and sacred, the righteous and ratchet, as we discuss current topics through a gospel lens. We might say some things we're not supposed to. But you are probably thinking it anyway. You know how we say in the church. Charge to our head, head and not our heart. We're going to keep it real. Good day, great people. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Righteous, Ratchet, and Real podcast. This is Greta. And I'm here with uh, my fabulous co-hosts, Renee and Takesha. Say what's up, ladies. What's going on, y'all? Hey, hey, hey. Today, we are so excited to have with us a friend of the Triple R. Yes, I'm calling it the Triple R podcast. The one, the only, Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Yay! Uh, Dr. Shanika, would you please say hello to our fantastic listeners? Hello. I'm glad to be here with you all once again. Looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. We are excited to have you. Uh, She is no stranger to the podcast. She's a friend of the podcast and has been a wonderful guest in the past. And we've invited her back today because she has a new book out. Yes titled Sacred Self-Care that was released this past August. And it is absolutely a terrific book, a a fantastic read. And if you have not picked it up yet, you need to go out and do so. Um, We have a lot to talk about in this episode. So we're just going to dive right in and get started. Dr. Shaniqua, could you just kind of talk to us about your journey and what brought you to Sacred Self-Care? Tell us about that. Yeah, um, sacred self-care is really interesting because this is a full circle moment. It was actually um, over 20 years ago, my struggling with chronic illness and stress and um, unexplained pain Mm. that um, taught me that I needed to relate to my body in a different kind of way and that I needed to practice self-care. So it was all of 2002 was the beginning of my self-care journey. That actually led to me um, getting involved in a women's ministry at my church to teach other women how to practice self-care. And it was in one of those evenings that I heard my call to ministry. Um, So sacred self-care, I say, this is me trying to um, capture a journey that I've been on for 20 years learning from my successes and my failures, Mm -hmm. and also learning from what this journey has taught me about my relationship with God. Hmm. Okay. All right. So Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Nope. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) So if 
interesting that you talk about your journey. And so thank you for your book, Too Heavy a Load. I know both uh, Dr. Rane and I used it in our research, and it was part of the grounding work that we looked at. So in it, you name some of the burdens that Black women carry with them in everyday life from, you know, the busyness of church and doing for family. And even you name some of the tropes that we live with, you know, like the idea of the strong Black woman. And so all of those things usually become barriers to how we care for ourselves. And much like you, I've had a journey where I was coming out of seminary and I just like had unexplained pain. And, you know, because I was going and going and going for everybody and then still showing up for myself in terms of school, but not showing up for self-care. How um, would you say that this newest book, you know, can speak and build on the body of work you've been doing over the years? Yeah. In many ways, I think this book is part two of Too Heavy a Yoke. It's 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 the follow-up, right? Um, it's also in many ways the follow-up of my second book, I Bring the Voices of, of My People. So ever since I started on this journey of ministry and trying to figure out um, how God is speaking to me, I've always been trying to juggle ministry with being a mother, with being a wife, um, with being a professional, but also with illness. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had surgery, like I think something like six weeks before I started seminary. So I started seminary very actively recovering from, from surgery, was dealing with a lot of um, health issues during it got very involved in um, racial justice and recon racial reconciliation work in the church while I was in seminary and was feeling the stresses of that, seeing many colleagues who were doing that ministry, who were doing urban ministry and um, just seeing the, 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 the burden it put on everybody. And so this book is really, um, it comes out of trying to do that work and, and, and trying to thrive at the same time, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's a, a, a follow-up to that with a strong Black woman. I, I have to admit, I was never really satisfied with where I ended too heavy mm -hmm. a yoke. Mm -hmm. I never really liked that last chapter, <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. I never, I never felt like it was enough. But at the time I wrote the book, I still hadn't figured out really how how do we get out of this? Mm -hmm. What what's what's how do we get out of this? I I was I was able to deconstruct the strong black woman, but mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out what the reconstruction looked like. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it was a matter of what the old people say: just keep living, baby. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it. I hadn't lived it enough yet. I hadn't lived the healing journey mm -hmm. of it enough yet to have the perspective to write on it. I think this is that perspective. It is okay. I've now been doing this for 20 years and I've relapsed and recovered and relapsed and recovered and made adjustments. And I've worked with all these seminary students and pastors mm -hmm. and activists. And I think I finally have something to say. Right? Like that's what this book is. Wow, that's that's really um, helpful uh, in terms of thinking about 
a one's ability to write about something that they've kind of gone through, but like not, you know, haven't seen the other side of it yet. So thank you for that. Um, so you distinguish uh, what many of us call um, practices of care, like getting your mani-pedi or going out to brunch with your girls or things like that versus true self-care practices. So would you flesh out for us um, that, that difference and, and that distinction a little bit? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I was talking to a, a group of Black clergy women from um, um, one of the Protestant denominations, and I was asking them about self-care. And immediately people began to say things like, well, yeah, I have a vacation scheduled in a, in a couple of months, or when, when my time, when I get a little bit of time, I'm going to go do a, a manicure, or, you know, I, I've had this certificate for a spa day, and I just, I'm, I'm going to do it eventually, right? Um, <laughs> And so, and I would say, oh, okay, th those are great. I, I love, matter of fact, I love all those things. Uh, I love all those things. Um, but I would say that's not what I mean, right? I'm actually talking about how you care for yourself on an everyday basis. So we have we have somehow talked about self care as if it is some special luxury we do mm -hmm. for ourselves, right? That is something every now and again. Um, almost as a reward. I've been working mm -hmm. hard. So now mm -hmm. I get to go and do this thing because I've earned it. I've, I've earned mm -hmm. my day at the spa. I've earned my mm -hmm. mani-pedi. I've earned that vacation. I've earned that shopping spree, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say that, like, if you think about the maintenance of a car, that's mm -hmm. like the detailing. It's the the extra. It is the it is. I'm going to create a great sound system for my car. I'm going to go and get a custom paint job. Right. I'm going to go and get my vanity license plate. That's what that is. Self-care, though, is about more basic practices. It's actually mm -hmm. how we treat our body, our minds, our spirits on a day in and out basis. Are we mm -hmm. sleeping enough? Mm -hmm. Have we drank enough water today? Have we exercised or moved our body in ways that sustain it? Are we in, in relationships that give us meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Have we talked to somebody that we love today mm -hmm. and that loves us back? Have mm -hmm. we gotten a hug today, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's those really basic things that we do to, to sustain ourselves in the ways in which we need to be um, as intentional and even more intentional about that than the luxuries. And that's not to say the luxuries aren't important. They are. Mm -hmm. And for some people, um, you know, a, a, a pedicure, if you're a diabetes patient, often a pedicure is basic self-care, right? But for many of us, that's kind of the luxury. We need to be making sure we're taking care of these other day-to-day -day activities. So, you know, I, I say in the book, it's no good having a car that looks wonderful and does not run. Hmm. Amen. So as I move my toes back from getting stepped on just now, uh, <laughs> because I am the quintessential, let me go get this pedicure. Let me go treat myself to a movie. Um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying about the luxury versus the overall maintenance. And I absolutely love the metaphor of the car you gave, but I want to go back to something. I want to circle back to something you mentioned because you said that, 
you finally have something to say. And to me, I hear self-care in that because sometimes we're trying to do things that we're not ready to do or respond to things that we're not ready to respond to, often to the detriment of ourselves. And I love that the wisdom that you just that you gave in recognizing that you weren't ready to respond, that you said you didn't know how to come out of too heavy a yoke or didn't know what to offer in terms of what the reconstruction looked like. And what what could you have done? What I'm, I'm thinking of the possible damage that could have been done not only to you, but to others in trying to talk about something that you yourself said that you weren't ready. And within that, I hear self-care. But And so it makes me, and I'm going to jump around in our little question list, but it makes me think about what you mentioned in terms of self-care being acts of resistance. Can you talk to us about that and and how it can be subversive? Yeah. Um, So this is one of the things I learned about self-care along the way. I mean, a lot of my my um, my self-care journey has been trial and error and mm. surprises, right? <laughs> like to do it and then discover something like, oh. <laughs> and one of the things that I struggled with was just how hard self-care is. Mm. And I would often condemn myself because I, I you know, um, you know, in, in, in good Methodist language, I found myself backsliding a lot, mm-hmm. right? Like I would do well and then backslide, um, mm-hmm. There were times where I would wake up and realize that I was back into the trap of the strong black woman. Mm-hmm. And I would be saying, how did I get here? Like, I literally wrote the book on this. <laughs> right. Like, so how am I back in this spot? Yeah. And so one of the things that I, I, I finally began to realize is because our world is not designed for us to take care of ourselves, mm-hmm. especially as black women. Quite frankly, our world is designed for us to take care of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I, I realized that the, the thing was, was that self-care was countercultural, mm. um, that it mm-hmm. required me to actually act against my conditioning hmm. for, for the sake of my own life. And that that was an act of resistance, that that was a subversive act to a mm. world that tells me my whole worth is dependent upon how much I do for other people or how Mm -hmm. much I do for institutions, right? But Mm -hmm. to instead claim that, no, I'm actually valuable, right? My life is valuable and has meaning is very much a a countercultural and subversive act. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, you're right. We, our world is not trained or designed for Self-care, you that's that's yeah. 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 That's so that that actually leads right into the next question because um I guess we would have to to act in ways that are subversive if we've always been told, you know, some things about our body and we don't really have a great relationship with our bodies. Um, so you know, can you talk to us about how if we don't necessarily have that great relationship with our bodies or dislike our bodies, how then can we get into a healthier relationship with it? What kind yeah. of subversive things can we do? Mm. Yeah. You know, and this is a huge issue for women because from the time um, we're born, I mean, very early in childhood, mm-hmm. we begin, all humans do, but we begin to judge our bodies 
-hmm. based on norms that we have seen often in mass media, right? Uh, which are these, you know, kind of, you know, air, airbrushed, photoshopped bodies that, that people have that look like perfection. And, and so we're bombarded with this image from the time we're born. Um, and then for those of us in the church, we have a different type of wrestling mm. going on. This idea that our bodies are sinful mm -hmm. and that somehow we have to atone for our body's sinfulness by covering up our bodies, right? Um, which bodies can can be on the pulpit, right? Um, which mm -hmm. bodies can stand before the people. Mm -hmm. And so we're always judging our bodies, not through the lens of the God who made us and said, mm -hmm. it is very good. Mm -hmm. but we're judging our bodies through the lenses of all these other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, it can be family messages that we get about our bodies and if they're good enough, is our hair good enough? Is our skin good enough? You know, where you, where you get those hips from? Like, like it's those messages, we start to get very early. And so we begin to look at ourselves through that lens. So many of us, I think in the US especially, we have a very negative um, image of our bodies. Uh, and you know, we're all like diet culture is huge. Right, mm -hmm. nobody, and it, it's it, it's amazing. Um, I I I have friends that like I would love to have their body, and they're complaining about their bodies, right? <laughs> and so I kind of wonder, like, when do when do any of us get satisfied, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of that is that that for me is you know part of my self care journey. One day I decided I was no longer going to be at war with my body, mm. right? I felt like I had been at war with my body my whole life. I was always trying to get, whether it was my hair, trying to force it to be straight when clearly it didn't want to be, right? <laughs> if, if it was trying to force my body into some particular shape and to look a certain way, or always think that, you know, well, when I get the body I want, then I can do certain things, right? Um, and so part of it was I decided I need to stop waging war on my body. Mm -hmm. And I actually need to befriend, befriend my body as it is now. Mm -hmm. Right. That doesn't mean that maybe I'm not working to improve my health or something, but mm -hmm. I have to love this body because this this is all I got. This is mm -hmm. the only way I experience life. The only way I experience God is through this body. Can I just say praise God? Amen. <laughs> hey pass the plate. Right. We had these pass the plate moments and that was one of them because I really just think, you know, as I'm aging and hitting this over 40 mark, you know, looking around and there's so much tension with getting older, mm -hmm. you know, from the media, you know, what's all of a sudden. And, you know, when you're younger, you don't recognize, right? Mm -hmm. You hear people say it, but you don't recognize the images and the bodies that are upheld and, you know, what people go after. And so as you age, I think the message, especially for women, becomes so much louder. We don't get to be, you know, silver foxes. And, you know, if anything, mm -hmm. in order to be a MILF, that means you got to be snatched. You got to be, you know, appealing. And so there's so much that we are fed. Mm -hmm. Um I want to double back for a second before I ask the next question. The whole idea of self-care as resistance. 
always mm-hmm. makes me think about Audre Lorde and her quote, right? That is the heart of what I think about that caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. How do you think you're speaking to what Audre Lorde has been trying to tell us? Yeah. I use that quote in in the book. And and one of the things that I think is important to point out is Audre Lorde wrote that in her cancer journals, Mm. right? She wrote that, she she came to that discovery as she was battling the cancer that eventually took her life, right? And it wasn't until that moment that she realized that all the years she had been doing movement work, she had been neglecting her body but that actually part of what the world does to those of us who are from marginalized populations is it kills us early. Like that's actually an element of of oppression, right? Is to kill people early, particularly black and brown people in this country, we die at much earlier rates. We are actually enabling the oppressive structures when we do that to our own body. And so Audre Lorde realized that everything she did to take care of her own health was actually a way of resisting the system, right? That even as she was, you know, in her hospital bed, as she was deciding to curtail some of her activity, it wasn't that she was less in the movement. She was actually in it by the way she was, she was trying to resist a culture that wanted her to die. Right. And so I think for me, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, a bit oppositional. And so for me, <laughs> it actually helps me to think about self-care as kind of my my act of um, holy resistance. Right. My my act of trying to resist the powers and principalities that gives me the strength to do it on days when I might not otherwise. Right. When I might say, OK, let me go ahead and let me let me ignore. Let me not do my exercise. Let me not do these other things. Let me just go spend the extra time at work. But for me to think about the fact that, no, the society wants to destroy us. I have to not be a party to my own destruction. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we, we didn't follow up with another past the plate moment mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as you say, when I think about how society has designed our communities, you know, when we talk about food deserts, we talk about people whose, you know, everyday work schedule is about surviving, you know, and getting enough money. So then we neglect ourselves because we're just thinking about the money we need to be okay, to pay the bills, to keep everything afloat. So And I just even apply that to church because bless it, you know, we're often making church, you know, keep going. So for every Mm -hmm. activity and ministry thing, we're we're like, we feel bad to say no, but it is required of us to resist that as well. And to say, I cannot, you know, not show up for myself because I need to show up for other people. So bless it, Jesus, you know, convicting me in this process. So in the book, you talk about how we have been taught and so to think about body and spirit in these dualistic ways. Can you unpack that for us? Did you ever think about your humanity in that way? You know, and if so, what helped to define your aha moment, you know, where you can understand that sacred and the secular, the righteous and the ratchet? 
can coexist. It's really interesting because for some reason, I don't have a memory of having that sort of split in my thinking. Mm. Um, and I think it may have you know, been part of um, my own asking questions, being that kid who sat in church and thought that doesn't quite make sense. Mm. Um, but I, for me, I think part of it, there was a little bit of um, this remnant. There was a remnant of African cultural traditions which do not divide mm -hmm. sacred and secular, do not divide body, mind, spirit. It's all one, it's all a unity. Right. And I think in some ways, for some reason, I think there are different aspects of our, our African heritage that might um, survive in each of us. And mm -hmm. that was one that sort of survived in me. So when I would hear people talk about their natural self versus their spirit self, right? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I was fortunate that wasn't the language of my church very much. And so I also didn't get it in, in, in that sense, right? Um, I did get a sense though, that there was a holy life and an unholy life, mm. right? And that our job was to put ourselves on the side of the holy. But even my questioning around that was often prompted by the fact that I have a father who converted to Islam when I was very young. And so that for me was always, okay, so then what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be holy? What is, it, it, it prompted some questions. Interestingly, it was really when I got into seminary mm -hmm. um, and maybe a little bit before that I start hearing the language come up more and more. And I think part of that is um, that's part of the fabric of Christian culture right now is there's a, a falling back on some of these old ideas. And so the natural man and the spirit man is one you hear a lot of people talk about. Um, I think in part because I'm a psychologist who was trained in a program that talked about the body-mind connection. So I came in a program where we were starting to learn things like your susceptibility to illness was impacted not just by your, your physical health, but by your, your mental health, right? That stress could impact, you know? I and mean, I'm reading these stories where people who were stressed are, are, are exposed to the common cold and they're getting sick versus the people who are not stressed are not getting sick, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that also began to teach me, wait a minute, there's more unity in our mm. bodies than, than we really think. And I was fortunate to be at a seminary that also helped to underscore that and helped me to think about the way we've made that distinction. And I was able to see through church history, right? Mm. That that was actually a fallacy of the early church, right? That was something that both um, the Gnostics and the Manichaeans did, that that was an element. Uh, so this is where that church history class comes in helpful, right? Uh, <laughs> Where it's like, oh, wait a minute. This isn't actually what Christ taught us or actually the, the tradition of scripture. This is the, the tradition of the Greco-Roman world that we then, you know, integrated into Christian belief. And so when I learned that there was no dividing of Christ's humanity and Christ's divinity, it helped mm -hmm. me to also reinforce that idea that, and likewise for us, there is no, there is no separation of our spirit self and our physical self, right? we only experience the world through our bodies, right? Like we don't live apart from our bodies, at least not now. I mean, maybe in the, in the hereafter, but for now, like we, we don't, to, to, to our knowledge, there aren't disembodied spirits 
like floating around, right? We, we exist embodied and there is no disconnection of, of body and spirit. If the spirit leaves the body, the body is no longer animated. We are no longer in existence, right? Um, and so thinking about that and like, if there is no distinction, then caring for my bodies is an extension of my spirituality, right? It is not something that competes with my spirituality. Okay. So I, I know within the book you mentioned, you, you write it around the time for Lent, but it doesn't have to be used or read during that time. But what for you was the connection to Lent and self-care? Yeah. So I didn't know what Lent was until I started seminary, y'all. I, I, I grew up Baptist. <laughs> we ain't know nothing about no Lent. We don't know uh, that. Nothing. Same for me. I learned about it in seminary too. I was like, oh, that sounds like a nice practice. Is that they doing this? They really doing this? <laughs> right. I know it was some like it was some Catholic people who might not eat meat or something like that. I didn't know anything else about Lent, but my first year in seminary, my classmates are starting to talk about Lent and what they're giving up. And I kept saying, why, <laughs> right? Like, why are you doing that? Because it wasn't something I had grown accustomed to. It wasn't my tradition. I wanted to understand what was the rationale behind it. Especially if you're telling me you're giving up milkshakes. Why? What does that have to do with Jesus? Right? Like, I'm like, so what does that have to do with Jesus? Like you eat milkshakes that much that that's interfering with your relationship with God? Right? So for me... <laughs> As I began to wrestle with Lent and try to make sense of it, I thought of it not so much as participating in Christ's suffering. Um, that, that was part of it. But it was also, this is about like not suffering for suffering's sake. This is about trying to grow closer to God. Mm -hmm. It's actually try, about trying to grow in our discipleship. So that's really how I've always seen Lent as this this period of intentional focus on our discipleship. And if there are things that are getting in the way of our walk with Jesus, then those are the things that we're trying to fast from, right? But mm -hmm. sometimes there are things we need to do, right? There are like these acts of commission that we need in order to grow closer to God. And so I started approaching Lent as what, what do I need in this season of my life? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was giving up, but um, a lot of times it was, I actually need to be better about my physical health, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I need to be better about my prayer and meditation ritual, right? I need to be doing these things. And so I often begin to take on this practice of taking on something for Lent mm -hmm. rather than giving up. And mm -hmm. as I got more serious about self-care as kind of this way of life, and mm -hmm. I developed my own self-care rule of life, Lent was up the time where I would look back at my self-care rule of life and say, what is it that I'm not doing or that I'm not doing faithfully? How, how does Lent become an occasion for me to do that better and mm -hmm. do it more, right? And not just for Lent, but Lent is a case where I'm going to focus on it, try to do it every day so that hopefully the pattern stays with me beyond Lent. And, and for the people who may not be familiar with the terminology rule of life, break that down for us. Yeah, so the 
the rule of life, um, it comes out of the monastic traditions, the monks. Every um, monastic community had what they call a rule of life. And it was a way that the monks thought about how do we live together, right? You, you put a bunch of people together, especially unrelated people, but even related people, and, and things <laughs> deteriorate real quickly, right? Um, you won't have many communities if you... <laughs> if you don't have right. some way of framing that. And so the monks were saying, we're supposed to be living for God, right? And so how do we organize our community so that the life that we have together does glorify God and draw us closer to yeah. God? And so they came up with these rules, right? And it had to do with like silence and patterns of work and, and all these rules. And a lot of, um, uh, about maybe 20, 30 years ago, I think there was increasing um, sort of Protestant interest in spirituality. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Protestants started looking at what the monks were doing and sort of what did we give up of our Catholic tradition. And the rule of life was something people started to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I was hearing about it in seminary. And then when I was a seminary professor and people were always talking about it just in terms of spiritually. Mm -hmm. What are the spiritual practices that you will use to sustain and nurture your relationship with God? But again, because I had been struggling with chronic illness, I also knew there were some physical things that I needed to do mm -hmm. if I was going to sustain my relationship with God and sustain my ministry, right? Mm -hmm. Like so that, and so I expanded it when I started teaching it, I started expanding it and saying, I want you to not just focus on spirituality, but mm -hmm. I also want you to focus on your physical well-being on your mental well-being, on your relationships, right? Um, think about all of these as part of your rule of life. Very good. So then for someone, some of our listeners who might be new to this idea of self-care in this way, how would you suggest someone get started? Is it taking an inventory of, of you know, the things they, they might not necessarily consider self-care, but really are, or, you know, what would you suggest? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, it, it makes me think about how, um, when, when I was a therapist and working with a lot of parents, you talk to black parents and if you ask them about discipline, um, a lot of times they tell you one thing, they tell you about spanking, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and I would say, you do a lot more than that. <laughs> Right. Like there are actually a lot of things you do, but a lot of times people didn't know how to name those. Mm. And so when you started saying that, you know, do you do you give them that look? That's discipline. Mm -hmm. Do you set clear boundaries and rules about expectations? That's discipline. Mm -hmm. I think self-care is a lot like that, too. Right. Like we we don't necessarily know what it is. So in sacred self-care, I do have an inventory. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, a self-assessment people can do. Not so much with the expectation that you're, you should be doing everything. That's unrealistic. But rather it is to prompt our ideas because sometimes we're doing more than we think we are. Mm -hmm. And what we need is maybe some regularity or some consistency or intentionality about our practices, like things we do a little bit here and a little bit there. But then if we really think about it, that really does help me to be healthier. I, should, I need to do that more often. Um, so it's thinking uh, about that. It's also, I, I think, though, starting to work through some of the resistance that we have to self-care. So mm. when I started my self-care journey, the single most important practice that I had was an affirmation. 
Um, and I actually had multiple, but there was one that was the most important. And it was, I am worthy of self-care. And I would repeat that to myself. I would start my morning by repeating it to myself over and over again. And then through the day, because what happened was I needed to retrain my brain mm. because I didn't think I was worthy. I thought my job was worthy of my care. I thought mm -hmm. family and husband were worthy of my care. I thought church was worthy of my care. I thought everybody was worthy of my care except for me. And so I had to convince myself in the morning that instead mm -hmm. of rushing off to work, I could actually sit down and pray and meditate and read scripture, mm -hmm. right? Like I had to actually convince myself or instead of staying late at work, I can leave early enough that I can go exercise, right? Um, and so I think for many of us, starting with something of an affirmation to help us recognize our need for care and recognize that we are worthy of it. I also hear making time for it in there. Cause making time yeah. is huge. Yeah. It is huge. Self-care. And this is, this is one self-care takes time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and ultimately we have to be willing to orient our time around mm -hmm. our need for care, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that used to happen naturally. Um, you know, you went to bed early because it was nighttime and it was dark and the only light you had was a candle. It really wasn't going to do much for you. Right. So people went to bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But now we have artificial lights. We don't have to go to bed. We have TV. We have things we can watch and do. And right. And so a lot of times it's actually our technology has made what would have been very natural for mm -hmm. most of human history, we are working against our own technology, right? So um, yeah, just recognizing that, yeah, I've got to make time for this. Yeah, that's good. You're muted, Keisha. Look, I was like, I switched from one thing and I didn't realize. Any last words for our listeners that you want to share? Tell us what's next for Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. And most importantly, tell the people how they can connect with you and where they can go buy the book. And then if you can just share with us anything that you're working on, what can we look forward to? Yeah. Um, I don't know what I'm working on. <laughs> this is actually <laughs> the first time in my life that I have finished a project and didn't mm -hmm. have another one. I was just chomping at the bit to get to. Mm -hmm. um, and so and that's actually, I think, part of the growth of my own journey is mm -hmm. learning how to just sit with something. But, you know, like not, don't just birth the thing. Usually I've been like, let me birth this thing so I can go do something else. But actually, like, no, let me just sit with this moment, right? And so, yeah, I've um, I've been enjoying that. Initially, it was weird to me, and it felt very uncomfortable for me not to have another plan. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sitting with that and waiting until the next thing is revealed. In the meantime, though, I do write um, for, I have a substat, um, which is a sort of blog, but you can follow me at Dr. Shaniqua substack.com. I write um, something on it once a week. I actually just finished up next week's entry, um, um, which is about change <laughs> and, and, and dealing with, with, with change. Um, and then I also do a, a podcast that I just launched, uh, which is all about prayer and meditation. They are just um, brief prayer and meditation practices. I, I put out about one a month 
um, and invite people to, to meditate with me. And it's a way of bridging together um, the meditation practice that has sustained me for 20 years with my own Christian values and beliefs. Love it. Love it. So where can they get the book? Yes. And you can get the book. Well, really anywhere books are sold. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop. I think both um, Walmart and Target, you can order it online from them as well. So please do go um, order the book, go to your local book dealer. And if they don't have it in stock, tell them to put in an order for you. Uh, So you can find the book pretty much wherever books are sold. Dr. Shaniqua, did you name the podcast? Did you tell them it? It's called Meditating with Dr. Shaniqua. And it is available on um, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And there's another one that I'm blanking on. (laughs) We gonna find it. We gonna find it. Wonderful. That's what I was gonna ask Renee. So I'm glad you got, you threw that in there. Very good. All right. So again, we thank each of you for tuning in. We thank our guests. Our sister, Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, we are so proud of you and the work that you have done and are doing. We're excited about whatever is next for you because we know it's going to be great. And so we just want to tell everyone, make sure you go grab this book or one of her other books. You heard her mention Too Heavy a Yoke, as well as I Bring the Voices of My People. And of course, the third work is Sacred Self-Care. You heard about our new podcast. So Yes, we are excited. And let me just say that I'm a witness that this book will truly bless you. So please go out and get it. And then do us a favor and tell or share this episode, this podcast, her podcast, amen, with a friend. And we'll be so very glad that you did. Join us next time as we keep it righteous, ratchet, and real. Goodbye, everybody.